This is Mike Gillis, and just a couple quick words before we get started. I want to thank all the folks that continue to support this program. We've been going for about a year and change right now, and we wouldn't be anywhere if it wasn't for you downloading and listening to this show. But if you want to be able to help us, you like what we do, you want us to do more of it, and you want us to get more listeners, consider going to iTunes, Stitcher, drop us some ratings and reviews. You have no idea how much that helps us out, gets our podcast in front of more ears and helps us keep going into next year and beyond. Also, a quick correction. Later in the panel, Sam and I disagree over a movie quote by Tor Johnson. I incorrectly state that it's from an Ed Wood movie. I was wrong. It was actually from 1957's The Unearthly, directed by Boris Petrov. And finally, if you can't get enough of So Bad It's Good, I want to recommend the website redlettermedia.com, especially their show, The Best of the Worst. Also, a couple of excellent bad movie podcasts. We Hate Movies, and How Did This Get Made? With that said, let's dive right into the panel. When I was about 10 years old, I discovered that terrible things could be awesome. My friends and I spent most of our junior high years drowning ourselves in delightfully awful movies. Whether I was glued to a TBS late-night Joe Bob Briggs presentation of Night of the Lepus, or laughing at the in-movie riffs from the guys of Mystery Science Theater 3000, I've learned that there's something wonderfully addictive about repurposing bad popular culture. Being a child of the 80s and 90s, I was treated to a veritable feast of deliciously shitty television and movies. Schlocky horror movies about robots murdering oversexed teenagers in a barricaded shopping mall, Undead Christy Swanson murdering the old lady from the Goonies with a basketball. Jean-Claude Van Damme responding to the female lead's question about why his character is named Chance by saying, Because my mama took one. A steady diet of hilariously bad culture stamped those images on my adolescent brain. They helped shape my sense of humor, and they gave me a greater appreciation for culture that was genuinely good. And I'm clearly not alone on this. With the explosion of the internet, the consumption of so bad it's good culture has become its own form of entertainment. Building on the foundation poured by the good folks at MST3K, internet critics like Doug Walker's Nostalgia Critic and James Rolfe's Angry Video Game Nerd have gotten millions of downloads and legions of fans for getting creatively angry at the bad media they grew up on. In 2009, Milwaukee-based Red Letter Media released a humorous 70-minute in-character review of Star Wars Episode One, tearing apart its plot holes and shallow characters. The review made fans of Simon Pegg, Roger Ebert, Lost's Damon Lindelof, and got a favorable write-up in the San Francisco Chronicle. We are entering an age where we like things not in spite of their objective badness, but because of it. Showings of Tommy Wiseau's hilariously inept movie, The Room, are selling out theaters to fans who love how awkward and terrible it is. They adore its stilted but not quite English dialogue, its melodramatic performances, and wait patiently to pelt the screen with plastic forks during appropriate moments with audience interaction that can't help but remind you of fans of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So why do people love things that they admit are terrible? What makes something so bad it's good? To answer that question, let's introduce the panel. Returning to our panel is Sam Mulvey of the Ask an Atheist radio show, which airs every Sunday on KLAY 1180 in Tacoma, Washington. Sam, welcome back to Radio vs. the Martians. 
Thank you. Really happy to be here. And for the first time on our program, aspiring comedian, screenwriter, and fan fiction aficionado, our good friend Rosalind Townsend. Welcome to the show, Rosalind. Hi, how you doing? And finally, the TV's Frank to my Dr. Forrester, <laughs> Casey Doran. Thank you, Mike. Thank you very much. So let's dive right into this topic. I'm going to start with you, Sam, because you were proudly a fan of the works of Ed Wood, who oh, is boy, yeah. probably the most famous bad filmmaker of our time. He did Plan 9 from Outer Space, Glen or Glenda, Bride of the Monster. This is all back in the 1950s. Yeah. These movies are still considered some of the worst films that have ever been made. His badness even inspired the popular Tim Burton film starring Johnny Depp. Why do you and people in general like his movies more than 60 years later? What separates Ed Wood from the countless other bad movies that are so quickly forgotten? Wow, that's a really difficult one for me. There's something so unique about the Ed Wood films. But personally for me, part of it is the history I have with those movies. Ed Wood's dialogue is this unwieldy albatross of adverbs if I'm going to pretend I'm Ed Wood for a moment. It's just this blocky, horrible thing. Nobody talks like that except for Ed Wood. So the minute you hear a line of dialogue, you know what you're watching. You have an absolute, you know where you are. The other thing is, this was a man who could not think small. His movies were these enormous alien space and time God was a character in one of them. All of his movies have this huge expanse of breadth and time and space and horrible things happening. And he had the ability to do none of that <laughs> in, in a cinematic way. And a lot of people talk about this, and I have to agree, he absolutely loved every minute of that film. And it is so clear. And it is, so, it is the most clear in, I think, his best work, Glenn or Glenda. I honestly think it's his best work. It's such an amazing movie that, well, to give you my introduction to it, imagine you're me, sorry, <laughs> and imagine it's 1992, uh, 1992 to 1993. So I'm just starting in high school. I'm asleep. It's like 3.30 in the morning. There's a knock on my door, and my, my dad walks, Sam, Sam, Sam. Yeah, dad, what's up? Everything okay? Yeah, there's a movie on you need to watch. What's it called? Glenn or Glenda. It's an Ed Wood movie. <laughs> like, who's Ed Wood? I have no idea. And so my dad woke me up at four in the morning to watch a movie about transvestites in the 1950s starring Bela Lugosi as God. <laughs> sitting in an armchair. Sitting in an armchair. And this, this was just, it's like, okay, is my dad trying to tell me something? But no, then the movie starts, it's like, I know exactly why he woke me. This is, what, I have no idea what's happening. It's, oh yeah, it's the love, the uniqueness and the failure is a part of it. The fact that it was kind of a failure kind of plays into it. I actually consider Ed Wood a hero, and I cannot tell you why. His ambition outsizes his actual skill to implement. Yeah, yeah. And it's like you kind of want him... I'm rooting for the guy as I'm realizing how objectively terrible what he's doing is. You know, I'm just glad he had the opportunity to do it. He lived his dream. Yeah. There's something about him being a product of a time where the Hollywood studio system, which was largely like making films on an assembly line, right? Yeah. Like all the studios had their own actors, carpenters, directors, makeup people, and they all produced X number per year, right? And they churned it out. Someone like Ed Wood was... You know, we do movies more like that now these days where you've got a guy who's got the drive and the talent and possibly the friends to do it. They can have their own vision and pump their own movie. Yeah. That wasn't really the case in his day. There was like all the big studios, they're making whatever movies they're going to make with their stars. And anyone who's ballsy enough to try to make all this happen himself, like 
That's huge. That's enormous. He is a prototype of a type of writer-director that is common now, but then was very uncommon. Was he really the first guy, I have to ask, was he the first guy who was known for having, like, his pet cast? I guess. No, I think no, Orson I Welles. Orson Welles, yeah. yeah Orson okay, Welles also right. completely dwarfed him with his actual skill to make a film. Yeah. I think they, they shared one thing in common, though, which was that enthusiasm. There was a real love for what they did. There was a love for creating something. Mm-hmm. The love in Ed Wood's movies is undeniable, that you can see that these are very personal to him. He's terrible at so many things, but you can see the strings on the flying saucers. You can see the cardboard sets. You can see that he's hiring ex-professional wrestlers like Tor Johnson to be monsters <laughs> and then actually expecting this guy to deliver a dialogue. Give him speaking role. <laughs> Time for go to bed. That was not an Ed Wood film, though. Bride of the Monster? No, Time for Go to Bed was... Uh, it was Bride of the Monster. That was in Bride of... No, I'm pretty sure it's I swear. <laughs> but uh, it's... Is this one of those it, magical lines like Elementary, My Dear Watson, that never really happened? You guys are both just imagining No, it. Time for Go to Bed comes from an episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000. They only did one Ed... No, they did two Ed Wood films, but one of them didn't have Core Johnson in it. The other was Bride of the Monster, which if you saw the movie that Tim Burton did, the one where... Uh, it's like four in the morning, and Bella Lugosi is in a lake wrestling with a fake octopus. It's that movie. And <laughs> okay. The arms on the octopus did not work, so Bella Lugosi had to pretend that the octopus arms were moving, and in fact, manually move them over his own body. <laughs> and you can tell, and it's like you can totally tell. He's like, "Oh no!" Ah, 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 ah. <laughs> yeah, it's. Oh yeah. <laughs> to go back to Ed Wood for a second, how was he? perceived during his time like i know that he's kind of got a cult following now but i'm he guessing most, with he mostly wasn't okay i was thinking like with glenn or glenda there must have been some sort of backlash against him i think there was a stream of at that time low budget controversial exploitation films that yeah. would show up for a week at a drive-in and then go away they had something controversial they're like bikers from mars <laughs> And they would exploit something that was perceived as scary or unknown in the culture, take advantage of it with low budgets, maybe one or two people in it that used to be famous once, and it's out there for a little bit, and now you see it on those collectible packs where there's like a hundred movies on a two-DVD set. And that was clearly one of those movies, which is why they have the inexplicable sex change operation in the middle of a movie about transvestites, is because the first sex change in the media thing happened then, and that's how we managed to get that movie made. Hmm. So we're talking about Ed Wood, and one of the things that we've really said about him is that we enjoy him not just in spite of his badness, but there's something in these movies that we love. There are so many movies that do come out every year, and I've noticed this working in a music department at a bookstore, that DVDs would come in every week, and so many of them I had already forgotten about since they'd left the theaters, and it had been less than a year. And some of them are just terribly like, oh god, I saw a trailer for Oh, what a fucking nightmare. I'm not someone who spends a lot of time watching bad movies. I went to film school. You went to film school too, I think, right? Yes, I did. There are a lot of fair to very good movies. So I guess I'm the dissenter. I don't like So Bad It's Good. In fact, the thing about So Bad It's Good is you're wasting time that you could be watching something good for maybe that there's a payoff for maybe one or two things that you might be mildly entertaining. Watching Plan 9 from Outer Space on my birthday a couple months ago was actually, I wanted to turn it off. I legitimately wanted to turn Plan it off. Plan 9, I'd, I think, is overrated. I'd started it and never finished it several times before. Yeah. And to me, that's hard to swallow. It's a little hard to try to keep rolling with something and fighting the urge to turn it off because maybe there might be some payoff there. 
Edward proves the case for me because I didn't actually find it all that entertaining. This I do disagree with you on, and I think that this is something we can agree on, which is that not all types of bad are created equal. Right. There are movies that make you genuinely angry or offend you, make you want to shut them off and not watch them ever again, like you just said. But there are things that you watch and you get a genuine enjoyment out of because of their ineptitude. Right. I mean, there are movies, and again... I have those movies too. Don't even get me fucking started <laughs> on Prometheus and Man of Steel. If you want to know how I feel about Man of Steel at oh, length, man. there is a Superman episode that we did a few months ago that lays it all out. Not every movie that's bad gets that kind of hate from me. I fucking hate some movies. But again, there are some movies that are objectively bad that I get a real joy out of. They don't piss me off. They don't anger me. They don't bore me. They're rare, but some of them are really wonderful. And that's what I want to get to is I think, Sam, you may have touched on something that is the heart of what separates that kind of bad from the kind of bad that makes you want to shut it off. And I'm going to throw this out there and I want to get your take on this. Like I said earlier, there's a lot of stuff that just isn't good. Stuff that even when you try to repurpose it or try to watch it ironically, you can't make it good no matter how much you chemically augment your viewing experience. (laughs) No matter how much you try to laugh at it or you get a group of your friends to riff on it, some stuff is just terrible. But I'm going to say, I think I know what the key is. And Sam, you touched on this earlier. I think what separates so bad it's good from just plain bad is sincerity. Mm. The thing with somebody like Ed Wood, and I'd say Tommy Wiseau from The Room... I'd say the guy who did Birdemic wasn't that these people weren't trying to make a bad movie. These people were trying to make a great film and sometimes trying to tell a very personal story. There wasn't anything ironic about that. They were honestly trying to make a great film, but they just weren't very good. Even if you talk to the guy who made Troll 2, the director, he will to this day not understand that people think that movie's terrible. He will talk about it as if it's a serious piece of art. It's like his brain just rejects the idea that somebody could get a laugh out of this. Now, I challenge that not being a serious piece of art. I think something can be a serious piece of art, but also be shitty. I mean, that's a seriously shitty piece of art. It's a shitty, serious piece of art. Yeah, I think art is intention. I was curious about you thrown around the term objectively bad, and I'm not entirely sure... If that might be a problem into my personal taste. Something because I can don't. just not be successful commercially, and, and that could be your, your measure of what's bad. Right? Something can be technically terrible. Like when right. you're watching a movie like, say, Dolomite starring Rudy Ray Moore, <laughs> and Dolomite. the boom mic makes so many appearances that it might as well be eligible for an, a best supporting actor role. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say that's objectively bad. When right. somebody is trying to do something specific and they fail at it that they're trying to give a tear-jerking performance and they fail. When they try to do an action sequence, and that's very clearly a dummy, they failed on some level. When they try to give you the impression that two characters are in love, like in Star Wars Episode Two, <laughs> and you just don't buy it. I don't buy that Anakin Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi are friends. The movie tells me over and over that these two people are the best friends in the world, but all they do is bitch about each other. That, to me, is a failure, because clearly the movie is trying to do one thing, And the actual movie itself is doing the exact opposite. So Mm. I guess that's what I mean by objectively bad. Mm. So for you personally, it's literally if it's to the point where the suspension of disbelief cannot be held. That's kind of what it's sounding like. Mm, Because you lose disbelief in a bad movie anyways. I think for the film school types here, there might be an aspect of craft that they that's what I was thinking that we don't because okay. I'm not a film yeah, school I, guy. Yeah. I just got electricity in my yeah. house I... <laughs> <laughs> but like you said Tim Ed Wood loved his own movies and yeah. I think that's the separator here is that 
the person who makes a great bad movie that's fun thought they were making something great. I mean, they didn't necessarily think they were making the second coming of Citizen Kane. Sometimes they know what they're making is kind of funny and silly and schlocky, yeah. but they still love it. You can make a movie where Abraham Lincoln fights vampires yeah. and make it fun and goofy, but the person who makes it has to love it rather than saying, this is a cynical cash grab. I can provide a counterpoint that kind of proves that for me. From your birthday party, Casey. Ah. Uh, Samurai Cop. Oh, yeah. Which you seem to enjoy. Yeah. Uh, we didn't hear most of that, unfortunately. I think most of the dialogue was drowned. Actually, that was really right in the line. It was okay. very much writing the line. Because I didn't enjoy it quite as much as I say I would enjoy an Ed Wood film, because that felt more like, let's make a movie that has people fighting. It felt more like a trauma movie and than anything God, else. I could fucking trauma. Yeah. Oh, we no. have to talk about trauma. We do have to talk about oh, trauma. This is the same movie studio by Lloyd Kaufman who created the Toxic Avenger. Which is a good movie. A good movie. Which I've met Lloyd Kaufman before. He's a very nice guy. He's a very nice guy. We can talk about things like quote unquote bad taste and there are people like John Waters who intentionally makes bad movies but there's a right. craft there. Yeah. With trauma, especially a lot of their later stuff, there's a trauma brand and it feels more like they're creating a brand or putting something out to intentionally be so bad it's good than somebody who makes something that they really love. It just has certain qualities. And I'm going to give an example of something that I have loved the shit out of, something that I recently discovered through Red Letter Media, the folks in Milwaukee who did Half in the Bag, The Best of the Worst, The Plinkett Reviews, and that's Miami Connection. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I think this is a great counterpoint to what you said, is that I know that you enjoy Miami Connection, Casey. Uh, because it has heart. That movie <laughs> has heart. You just backed up my argument there. Yeah. yeah. But I don't know if I'm willing to concede necessarily that an Ed Wood movie has heart. Uh, well, okay, let's set that aside for the moment. Yeah, Miami Connection. I think it's important to set the stage for what this is, because I think we'll see some parallels with Ed Wood. This was a lost labor of love from a Taekwondo instructor based out of Miami <laughs> named YK Kim. And I believe somewhere in Miami. Somewhere in yeah. Miami in the year 19XX. 1980X. 1980X. <laughs> so in the late 80s, this Taekwondo instructor, YK Kim, wanted to make a film. He had it starring his students. These are not actors, and it shows. A lot of people sunk their hopes, their dreams, and their life savings into this thing. (laughs) It opened to a huge box office failure on eight screens and lasted for three weeks. (laughs) Miami Connection was then rediscovered by the folks down at the Alamo Draft House, who had one developed film on an eBay auction for 50 bucks. They didn't know what they got, but when they watched it, they said, this is fucking incredible. The movie was such a massive failure and was such a black stain on YK Kim's career that the first few times they tried to contact him to obtain the rights to remaster it, he hung up on them right away. (laughs) (laughs) This was not someone who's like, oh God, that thing, this has got to be a prank phone call. (laughs) This movie is fucking amazing. It's a cross between Josie and the Pussycats, Double Dragon, and the Get Along Gang. (laughs) It's about a Taekwondo rock band called Dragon Sound who wear matching t-shirts. They're all orphans and they live together in a house. They're college students, despite the fact that the leader of the group, played by Y.K. Kim himself, is clearly 40 fucking years old. (laughs) They battle a group of drug-dealing ninjas on motorcycles. Their name is Miami Ninja. Miami Ninja. That is is the name of the ninja group. They're officially Miami Ninja. Miami Ninja. In the singular. The Miami. (laughs) So not the Miami Ninja machine. (laughs) No. Okay. 
the ninjas have teamed up with a rival rock band that were thrown out as the previous house band <laughs> right. at the nightclub that Dragon Sound performs at. And the deal they make with the ninjas is part of this Marvel supervillain team up is ridiculous. We will give you all our money if you defeat Dragon Sound. <laughs> Every dime that we get for performing is amazing. And what's better? The songs that Dragon Sound sings are all about martial arts and friendship. Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. They're so catchy. I've had that song, the Against the Ninja song, in my head, like for days now. Do, after do, do, do. <laughs> Against the Ninja. What? Do, do, do. What's interesting is that they sing the song, and the song's about the Dragon Sound having their natural enemy be the ninja. But when the song in the movie occurs, they have not met the ninjas yet. No. Like, so they have no idea why they're against the ninja. They just are against it's the ninja. It's almost a bit close-minded. They don't want. They just want to slander the ninja a little bit. Because they say that ninjas are full of lies and hatred, and Taekwondo is how we live our life. I've discovered that maybe 7.30 in the morning is not the best time to watch a bad movie. Because I, I just saw it today, finally. And uh, it took me a long time to warm up to it. I mean, the thing about movies like that one is that they're a connection of bad moments rather than just a bad movie. So many bad moments, and but it's this is just this <laughs> unending stream of bad moments. And I and I got up and it was seven thirty. What the hell am I gonna do? Hey, I'll watch Miami Connection. Yeah, there's a way to start your day. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it sure is slow getting moving. That's that for is, sure. Yeah. Uh, it does have a great scene at the beginning where you have drug dealers. Oh yeah, oh the the ambush is great. The yeah. ambush is wonderful because yeah. it has so many things that are all over the 1980s. It's got drug dealers. It's got ninjas. It has somebody killed with a ninja star to the chest <laughs> and t-shirts. Like the variety of costumery by. Most of the guys are people getting their asses kicked. Right. It's really awesome. Like, yeah. there's, a, there's a lot of variety in like the, the costume. Like, uh, what was the guy, the, the, the one who looks like Kid Rock or something? There's a Kid Rock guy. <laughs> yeah. There's a guy who looks like Walter Subcheck from The Big Lebowski. You think he looks like Walter Subcheck? I think he looks like a pudgy Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so great is that everyone in this movie, it isn't just YK Kim who's bringing all of this enthusiasm. Every single one of the extras come to this thing thinking, I am thrilled to be here. Every extra in that movie has a personality. Everyone can beat everyone else up because everybody in this universe knows martial arts for some reason. Yep. Including the nightclub Inclu owner. The nightclub owner. The restaurant The nightclub fight was my favorite part. <laughs> yeah. The nightclub fight? But they're arguing over firing the previous... <laughs> e no, 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 it's, me your bridges, your songs, it's, 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 it's totally unscripted, right? Like the, oh, the it's director, totally. The Nobody director, wrote that. The director just said, okay, you know, this is a medium shot. This is two people. You're going to come in here and you're both going to be angry. And so, like, the guy who got rejected comes in and his first word he starts going, <laughs> and they're just screaming at the top of their lungs for about 20 seconds. And then they start fighting one another. Yeah. Like, it was just like, we'll just make up some words. And uh, they start at 11. Like, yeah. the whole thing starts at 11. I have to admit, I had no idea what the context was until you actually told me why they were fighting. <laughs> All the exposition happens in long shots where there's they're like people are walking somewhere and they're dubbed over. Like you don't actually know why A is going to B is going to C until they have parts where all the actors are just. just I am going like, to in, the supermarket to right. buy peas. Yeah, right. We got to get rid of Dragon Sound. Like yeah, they hate we're Dragon Sound now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the ninjas hate Dragon Sound because the second in command ninja Jeff. <laughs> Jeff. Jeff's sister is Jeff dating ninja. one of the guys from Dragon Sound. Jeff the Ninja. <laughs> He's got a beard, too. It's wonderful. So Jeff the Ninja's sister is dating one of the mid-range guys from Dragon Sound. The ninjas don't like that, so they try to fuck their shit up. Meanwhile, the deposed house band is so many bad motivations, but every member of the deposed house band looks like 
bad guy henchman from Final Fight. <laughs> yes. Classic yeah. 80s yes. henchmen where these are straight toughs with like the bandana tied around their head and their sleeves ripped off. But it's like if the Final Fight guys had like three or four times the budget. Because like I said, everybody in this movie is a character. It's not, oh, some guy who's with the Miami Ninja Machine. It's that guy with the Miami Ninja Machine who's constantly carrying around radish or something right. like yeah. that. I love it is that all of the extras in this movie always want to do something. They make so good use of every minute, every second, every millisecond of screen time they get. If I'm on camera and my character is holding a lead pipe, I'm going to be slapping the palm of my hand with it. Not only that, but they're also talking. Most of the dialogue in the movie happens when five or six people are on screen and the director just lets them say whatever. It's like a Robert Altman film. It's awful because you can't understand what's happening at all, but each of them have their own character, and you can tell they've thought about what they're going to say, and they're talking over one another. It's like... What I I quite like is probably why Kikim went, just do whatever you want. It's going to be great, and that's where that comes from. When Kid Rock is showing failed attempt to clone the Allman brothers, (laughs) how to do that dance when Jeff the Ninja's sister shows up at the bar. Do you guys remember this scene? Yes. What? What? Yeah, that was, you know, it's like a, you, the fight scene. I was like, that was ad hoc. You know, that was, right. they were, what, what do you call it when you don't have a script? Um, improvised. They were improvising. I should know that. But I had to improvise. Um, <laughs> and, and I didn't think so until that scene where they're like, yeah, I do this little dance and I look like I need some Metamucil stats. <laughs> and my Pink Floyd hat. And, and it's like, and like, wow, they had no idea what they were doing. I think maybe the part that we've overlooked is that the villain is the head of Miami Ninja. He's great because in different scenes throughout the movie, he's sort of revealing one facet of stereotypical 80s bad guy. Like at first, he's like badass ninja guy. You see him, he's the leader. He's the one in the white costume and he's the leader of all the ninjas in the black costumes. Then when he visits the club, he looks like the real estate investor, right? He's like, I'm the one who's getting a cut of this place. And then suddenly he's like the leader of a biker gang. And he's he's going and hanging out with a bunch of white trash dudes and biker bars with a bunch of girls bearing their tits all over the place. Just random tits now. And then, yeah. and then by the end of the movie, he's the stereotypical sadistic killer villain. But he's, he's like all 80s villain types into one. I know why the bikers are in the movie. I think that YK Kim knew a biker group. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know how to ride motorcycles? You can be in my movie. And I think that's how he picked all his extras. That's how he picked his primary characters. They're all students of his Taekwondo schools that he owns a chain yeah, of. Right. There's a reason that they don't all act, and there's a reason that some of them are better than others. Like the black guy who's always kind of overacting, but my God, that guy throws himself into I that love him. whole heart. That whole, that whole scene, uh, it's got to be at least three minutes long, that scene of him tearfully recalling the story of his lost father. Tearfully and a little homoerotically. <laughs> They're all walking around without much clothes on all yeah. the time. I was going to say, the whole thing is... I mean, it was Miami in the 80s. There's, so I don't know. There's a lot of there. That, there. that the grape feeding scene. <laughs> what makes this movie so wonderful is that there's nobody who holds anything back. They commit to this movie, Nicolas Cage style. They throw themselves in so sincerely. This movie is so fucking earnest. Yeah. And that's what separates it. Hmm. Everyone loved being there. Everyone wanted to make this the best movie ever. Everyone loved what they were working on. And we're talking about a pre-MMA understanding of martial arts where Taekwondo, you can actually, apparently in movies, kill people with. Right. <laughs> right. You just, you could not sell that idea. It's no. practically magic. I yeah. think Taekwondo was pretty much underserved as far as the types of martial arts that are shown in movies at this point. And I think that maybe this was actually part of YK Kim's thing was he was like, oh, we can have a type of martial arts that we don't normally talk about. Like, they're mostly talking about ninjutsu or karate. 
right? Well, that was the school that he taught. Yeah, yeah. No, but and yeah, I think yeah, that yeah. he no, was, was hoping. It was kind of an innovation, right, for 80s action, because they actually wanted to talk about it and present a Korean martial arts as opposed to Well, he wanted Japanese. to make it cool because at the same time, he wanted to get interest in Taekwondo up there. And there's nothing that makes it seem cooler than having an action movie that showcases the martial art that you teach, yeah. starring all your students. That's true. Right. Right. I do know that at the end of that movie, I wanted to know enough Taekwondo to grab someone's nose with my toes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, speaking of homoerotic scenes. <laughs> I wow. Even, that happened twice, too. Yeah. I don't even know what they were trying to reach for, aside from a nose in that scene, because it's treated like it's this ultimate finishing move, like, I can kill you with your nose at any moment. <laughs> but it just comes across as a, oh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> It looks so goofy and a little bit odd. Again, the beauty of the ineptitude. <laughs> Taekwondo, the grandpa of martial arts. <laughs> it's it's so wonderful because it comes down to this unique marriage between ambition, enthusiasm, and ineptitude. Yeah. It's that they don't know exactly what it is that they're going for, but they don't achieve it, whatever it is. And what they achieve is something far weirder, far funnier, and just kind of awkward. Well, certainly, I think that maybe the most confusing bit at the end is the title card that's about wanting to pres- preserve world peace, or what is it? Res- Only through the elimination of all violence can we achieve world you, peace. You right. mean my new desktop background? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, of course, the movie is about revenge. Like, the movie is just about, Bloody yeah, about, about murder and revenge. What we're seeing with Ed Wood, what we're seeing with Miami Connection and YK Kim, is we're seeing people trying to reach for a dream. Yeah. They're not good at achieving that dream. They're not even good at reaching for that dream. They stumble, they fall over themselves, but there's a sincerity. They go all in, they commit themselves to doing something, and they just create something that is just so awkward. They're, but they, they, they're they going to come out on top because they play to win, Mike. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so there's somebody else who also comes out on top because they play to win. Oh. It's a book that I discovered while working at a bookstore years ago. Jesus. It's a book that was discovered by a coworker of mine at a bookstore I used to work at. Okay. This is a novel by a self-published author named Burnett Lee Doris. And Burnett Lee Doris wrote a book called Titanic, The Second Voyage. <laughs> and the beautiful thing about Titanic, The Second Voyage is that the synopsis on the back of the book, which also serves as the opening paragraph of the novel, oh, handy, is written by the author. And to really capture how fucking weird it is, it needs to be read by somebody who's approaching it for the first time so that you don't subconsciously fix its grammar. So, Rosalind, how does this epic begin? It's a race against time. Since the first Titanic had sailed the North Atlantic back in April 14, 1912, since then, people all over the world love talking about the beautiful ocean liner, the Titanic. They talk about how beautiful the vessel was. Scientists would explore the ship that is laying on the ocean floor of the Atlantic. Scientists had brought back items that lived in the sea for many years. Scientists had even brought back a part of the ship. But what about the ship itself? Scientists would say, it is very impossible to bring a ship that size back to the surface. But could they rebuild a ship that size again and make it look like the real Titanic? The tax the taxpayers? Sorry. The taxpayers would say no. No way. Because it would cost them too much money. And it may hit another iceberg and sink again. <laughs> I'm imagining the taxpayers as like a Greek chorus. <laughs> no one really talks about rebuilding the Titanic. 
Since the Titanic is gone, it is just a memory, or is it? In this story, it had been done. The Titanic has been reborn. The race continues on. I think if the race began what in race? 1912, <laughs> yes. what the race, race is long over if it's a race against time. Yeah, yes. I think somebody else probably won that race. <laughs> I'm thinking. Yeah. If the race began during the Taft administration, <laughs> it's over. Can I just put Taft in the Atlantic and use him to cross? <laughs> he is buoyant. That's the third one, the third voyage. <laughs> But I think this illustrates what we're talking about, this idea of somebody who loves what they're doing and is just shitty at it. Uh, this could have been written by an 11-year-old, though. Yeah. To be honest... This is written by someone who has English as their first language. Right. <laughs> okay, I was about to say, because I proofread lots of stuff from non-native English speakers, and I went, no. As far as I can tell from the research that I've done, he is like 60, and he was born in Detroit. Wow. He is a native-born American. And English is his first language. This is the fruit of his loins. So is so look upon ye in despair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> have you read this book, or do you just have? have it a... wouldn't be hard to. It's only sixty pages long. Wow, it's not even the full book. A friend of mine who was a coworker of mine at the time bit the bullet, bought the book, and saw that the Titanic: The Second Voyage isn't even the entirety of that sixty pages. It's only the first forty. What are the last 20? The last 20 pages yeah. are entitled Chapter 2. It's a separate book altogether, and it's called The Monument Monsters, about, I guess, the same plot as Night of the Living Dead, where monuments, not the dead bodies that are buried Aww. beneath them, but the actual headstones start coming to life and attacking people. I've not read it, but flipping through it, there's some dialogue bits that are wonderfully in all caps and don't have quotation marks around them, such as, A computer laser? <laughs> <laughs> a computer laser was this written before the movie titanic came out in the 90s or i think it was after gotta be after it's gotta be after this yeah. is clearly cashing in on something yeah burnett lee doris has also written another book i guess a lesbian cowgirl book called the long orange rides again the long orange rides again yeah are we speaking in code now <laughs> The cat caws at midnight, and the donkey sours the basil. <laughs> no, these are books that this guy is seriously trying to sell as the fruits of his artistic mind. Don't say lines again. <laughs> it's kind of amazing, because when you really look at these books, there's something about them that really just says this guy is serious, this guy is trying to be an artist, and this guy is just terrible at it. But that enthusiasm, there's something infectious about it. There's something about it that I don't want to laugh at him in a spiteful or malicious way, but I can sort of laugh at him in a way that says, I love that you did what you did. Hmm. I may not love it for the reason that you wanted me to love it, but I still enjoy it. So isn't it oddly a success in the same way? Mike, when you talked about the Titanic 2, I thought I would try to find another example in literature to, about So Bad It's Good. And by virtue of the internet, that allows these things to happen, you know, because no one would seriously... The uh, world's greatest slush pile. Yeah, right. exactly. It is the world's greatest slush pile. It is a fanfic based on the computer game Doom called Doom Resurrection of Evil. Oh my God. If you would allow me to read it, I'll regale you. Oh boy. John Stalvern waited. The lights above him blinked and sparked out of the air. There were demons in the base. He didn't see them, but had expected them now for years. His warnings to Cernel Joson were not listened to, and now it was too late. Far too late for now, anyway. John was a space marine for 14 years. 
When he was young, he watched the spaceships, and he said to Dad, I want to be on the ships, Daddy. Dad said, No! You will be killed by demons! <laughs> He's a wise man, his father. <laughs> there was a time when he believed him. Then he got older, and he stopped. But now, in the space station base of the UAC, he knew there were demons. This is Jozon, the radio crackered. You must fight the demons! So John gutted his Palsma rifle and blew up the wall. He going to kill us, said the demons. I will shoot at him, said the cyber demon as he fired rocket missiles. John plasmaed him and tried to blow him up. But then the ceiling fell and they were trapped and not able to kill. No, I must kill the demons, he shouted. The radio said, no, John, you are the demons. And then John was a zombie. The end. That was Yay! an attempt at depth there at the end. I'm guessing the author is six. I don't think he was six, but I think he was yeah. close. Okay. Too old for the <laughs> piece that he's written. John, you are the demons. <laughs> John. So basically, we should do that as a radio play, yeah. I think. What if in a huge twist, it was written by the same guy that wrote the Titanic sales again? <laughs> 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 Oh, my God. Well, there's a long tradition of bad fiction being read for entertainment value. Like, in the science fiction world, there's the Eye of Argon, mm -hmm. which people would have parties where you would get the Eye of Argon, and then you would read it until you laughed, and then you lost, and you had to hand it over. Becky and Carol hadn't heard of this, so I, I got the Eye of Argon on my device, and I gave it to them, and I could not hear for the rest of that evening, because Becky and, and Carol were going, Aah! This is great! <laughs> uh, ocular orbs and stuff like that. Similarly, I reread the Left Behind novels recently, which are close to So Bad It's Good. There's sort of a dark side. There's the, the light side of So Bad It's Good, things that are bad, is the stuff like Ed Wood, which is this wonderful, magical world of utter failure. And, and, and But then there's the other side. Yeah, and this is a side that I know that I definitely want to ask you about, Sam. You're a uh -huh. purveyor of propaganda. There's oh, yeah. a lot of things that you enjoy, whether it's North Korean propaganda, chick tracts, stuff that, again, we're talking about people approaching this with absolute sincerity, but saying things that are terrible. Yeah. Or saying things that are just downright insane. Do you think your love of propaganda is in some way similar to your love of So Bad It's Good? I think yes and no. I have this thing where I research things that scare me, generally. If something is terrifying to me, if something bothers me, I'm going to spend a lot more time reading up on it than I would otherwise. Like, when I met Becky, she was really surprised that I had this incredibly in-depth knowledge about certain Christian cults and how they operate, and then she'd assume I'd know something about her faith at the time. She was still Jewish, or still following that religion, and I didn't know anything. And, and she's like, I, I don't know. I was like, how do you know all this stuff and not all this? Well, they didn't scare me, so I didn't research them. So, propaganda... I like to know how people think. I like to get inside people's heads. People are a very interesting thing to me, you know, and, and how they put together and how people arrive at the thoughts that they get at. And that's what propaganda is. Propaganda, it gives you sort of a 3D view. This is what somebody else is going to write to make you think like they do. And so that is a really interesting channel into that person's mind and how they think, because this is something that they think will change your mind in the case of cults and chick tracks and stuff like that, Scientology periodicals and stuff like that, they are so separated from 
me and from most other people that the only thing it does is serve to show how their brains are working because you're not the target audience no we are i am the target audience in that case that's the thing is most propaganda that's modern you are the target audience they are writing it for us an interesting thing to contrast there would be say the scientology stuff and then like the north korean stuff i don't think you're a target of north korean propaganda not all of it but some of it i am yeah the stuff that's definitely in english yeah we're the target of that The stuff that the KFA does, Korean Friendship Association, yeah, we're the target of that. The newspaper they do, I think, comes out of Toronto. Yeah, that's supposed to be for us. We can find a lot of humor at that when Kim Jong-il claims that he never has to go to the bathroom or that he invented the hamburger. Yeah. That stuff is just absurd. I think there's that love of absurdity that we all have when they claim that when the North Korean soccer team lost... At the Olympics, because it was they because got hit by lightning. Yes, they had all previously <laughs> together. I think were hit by lightning, right. or perhaps one by one individually, <laughs> and that was the reason they lost. Which the one game? of those is less likely? Actually, I don't know. <laughs> all together you know, or one by one? The thing about North Korean propaganda is it's like going to like a glass blower, like somebody who does like a technological thing that has been completely outmoded, but they still do it for artistic value. Nobody does what North Korea does anymore. Not even the folks who made it, the Russians, they've moved on from that. That state art propaganda bullshit. I mean, I got into North Korea propaganda because I was into Soviet propaganda. Because it's, you know, growing up as I did in the 80s, those are the bad guys. I'm supposed to instantly identify them as evil. That's scary. I want to know why. So I started looking into, you know, Soviet propaganda. And Soviet state art is actually pretty awesome in a lot of ways. But it's also really ham-fisted. In other ways, Hmm. the North Koreans kind of got the ham-fisted thing, and that's about it. I mean, it's like going to see a ragtime band. I mean, it's just, nobody does this. Not only is it anachronistic, it's just downright inscrutable, right? Yeah. You can't even understand why it is that they would say this, or how it is that anyone would believe it, right? Right. And it shows you the differing standards that people have. Like, for Hmm. example, I think I've mentioned this a few times, the Pyongyang Pizza Parlor right. commercial, <laughs> yeah. where they go, Pyongyang has a pizzeria now, and it's not an English ad, it's an ad in North Korean. And they show, look at all of these wonderful ingredients, and they show, look at this awesome sauce, it's gray. Look at these wonderful vegetables, they're gray. Here's the dough, it's gray. Look at this great cheese, it's blue. <laughs> and it's like, this is the least appetizing pizza I have ever seen. This is not pizza. But if you don't have a lot of food. Or no cultural reference for what or pizza no, should no, look like. But, uh, but this, this was during a time when they were having food distribution problems in North Korea. Oh, okay. So here they're having, you know, pizza ads in a country that's starving. Asterisk, footnote, get to that in a minute. Um, <laughs> you know, okay, they might not have a cultural reference to know what pizza is. But I'm pretty sure they know that vegetables are green right. and not gray. And it's like, but this is what they think this is going to entice us. Wow, we are worlds apart here. And every time I laugh and I giggle and I, the song about Kim Jong-il clapping his hands and creating thunder and, and stuff like that, it's all amusing and I laugh. But I, people who don't believe this in North Korea are tortured and killed. And that always tempers it for me. Yeah, you can have this absurd garbage that comes out. And it's funny because if an American politician said this, it would be laughable to say, I have mystical powers. I can control the weather with my emotions. I always get a hole in one when I play golf. So you have this kind of absurdity. But again, there's that layer of cruelty that it's built on. Yeah, There's a foundation of starvation. And it becomes kind of hard to enjoy. But you have this weird 
qualified love of certain things, knowing that you can only laugh at it so long and realizing in some way, laughing at it is the only thing that you can do, aside from just breaking down and crying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, this bridges really well into what I was thinking about when you first sort of pitched this topic, because I thought it's so broad. But I was trying to figure out how you qualify it beyond just an Ed Wood movie or some old movie that was on VHS, how to broaden that out. And I would argue that maybe our definition of so bad it's good is actually too narrow. Like, I actually think that So Bad It's Good and the curiosity behind it, it's a trigger for a certain type of human attention, is what I want to say. So it's like whether you're plumbing the depths of how terrible something is, or maybe you have a curiosity about something because you fear that you might be missing out by not knowing about what it is, it's the rubbernecking, right? So Bad It's Good is a payoff for a certain type of curiosity about something that you have some foreknowledge about whether or not you think you're actually going to enjoy it. But you just don't want to miss the fact that it might be a letdown, but you just want to know what kind of a letdown it is. I have like three or four different categories of bad. So much of my life, it's actually kind of stupid how much bad media I consume. <laughs> it really is. There's so bad it's good. It's the failure in sincerity. That's the Ed Wood style. There's the observation of failure modes where, okay, this thing failed. This is something that I'm interested in. I want to see how this failed so that in the future I know how to avoid that sort of failure. Learning experience. Learning experience. There's schadenfreude, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, Fred Phelps. And there's sort of terror bad, where this is bad, it's horrible, I feel like I need to know about this. In order and laughter to becomes a coping mechanism. And laughter is a coping mechanism, yeah. Like, I thought there would be this nice little golden age of North Korean propaganda with Kim Jong-un, because it looked like for a couple minutes there that he was going to be kind of the kinder, gentler despot. And so while we're waiting for North Korea to finally figure out that it's not really a country so much as it is a failure at distributing resources... That nobody would be like sent to the camps, but they're still doing the propaganda. And so I could sort of enjoy it more wholeheartedly. But no, nah, he just executed his uncle and his ex-girlfriend. So fuck that. Sure. Yeah, like you do. You know, I didn't have propaganda in that list, but I can certainly see how the viewing of propaganda as an outsider is one of the things. But I did make a short list of things that I thought were under So Bad It's Good. And I want to see your reactions to it. So the first one I thought was Smell My Finger. I think Smell My Finger is rooted in So Bad It's Good. <laughs> well, then it sounds when, like just bullying is part of So Bad It's Good. It's uh, funny wait. to the one person, but it's not funny to the person who's on the business end of it. But you still do it, don't you? I don't do that you to people. You lean in and you what smell you the finger, don't are you? Are you Chet no. from Weird Science? <laughs> yeah, I've never... Well, okay, so the, the list goes on. Herman Cain. I think Herman Cain is yes, so bad. That's it's part Cain. of the Schadenfreude yeah. that Sam talked about. That yeah, this is right. a goofball who's also sort of harmful. So when he fails or says stupid things, you can watch his relevancy crumble before him as he doesn't understand it because he's kind of a joke. Number three, McDonald's food. I think McDonald's food is absolutely so bad it's good. People eat it knowing that it's bad, meaning like bad for you, or just generally a bad type of food, and yet they enjoy it anyways. So, but that's more like bad and good on different axes. It tastes good, but it's made out of plastic. There has to be some enjoyment of so bad it's good, otherwise you wouldn't do it, right? There's also the notion of vice. Like, you're eating something that's horrible for you, knowing that you might feel guilty about it later kind of a thing. Or that it'll make you feel bad later. Yeah. I mean, but I've actually had a similar experience to that. I once, for about a week, had this insatiable need this lust this hunger to eat one of those shitty am pm gas station hamburgers oh, I remember oh wow this was happening they yeah. still make those and i know in my brain i'm not going to enjoy it i know what they <laughs> taste like 
It tastes like something that's been microwaved at least 10 times. <laughs> it looks like something that probably came from the Johnson administration. It's <laughs> fucking terrible. But I couldn't get out of my head. And when I ate it, there was an enjoyment there. I hated it. It tasted terrible. But it felt like that desire was gone. And I imagine this is probably what a zombie feels like when it sees somebody running away. Is it an enjoyment or like the satisfaction of like the craving has been fulfilled, the rightful order has been restored? It's probably more like going to the bathroom after it's, having yeah, to go for a long not, time. I feel like that was a nice trip to the bathroom. I should put that in my scrapbook. No, it's just like a satisfaction of, yeah, okay, it's happened. Well, related to smell my finger. <laughs> Let's go back to that. No, I think I have one that might be more appropriate. Okay. Ah, this is terrible. Taste it. Try it. Yeah. But yeah. We, did, we did that. Yep. Shared uh, experience. With that bottle of cider I got at Pint Defiance, it was $2.13. And it was a 20-ounce bottle. And I'm like, I have to know what a $2 bottle of hard cider... Carbonated acetone. Tastes like. <laughs> Basically. And I had it was horrible. It was like... And, and I just passed it around and tried to get everybody's description of what it tasted like. Burnt electrical equipment. Summer sausage. <laughs> plastic summer sausage. <laughs> and fermented asparagus. I mean, it was... Oh. Yeah, it was not good. But boy, that was the only thing I remember drinking that night. <laughs> <laughs> because then it did its job yeah there was a similar instance where it was post show for ask an atheist and i yeah. was eating olives and i'm like taste this it smells like a hospital yeah it's like somebody <laughs> somebody opened up a can of windex on your olives it was so weird but there's a need to share that with people and yeah you were talking about that idea of cruelty playing a role in so bad it's good does also bad it's good have an element of cruelty to it? If you think about it, I think there's an element of mockery in it. But the the cruelty angle, I know I, there's actually a story that Kevin Murphy from Mystery Science Theater 3000 tells, where he saw one of his favorite authors, Kurt Vonnegut, eating dinner at a restaurant, and he's like, "Hey, the chance to talk to one of my heroes." He went over there, introduced himself politely, and described what it is that he did for a living on Mystery Science Theater 3000. We repurpose these terrible movies, we laugh at them, and we do a TV show. Kurt Vonnegut was not impressed and, in <laughs> fact, came to the defense of these bad movies and said, you know, a lot of those people don't really have the budgets that they wanted and they were trying their best. Left Kevin Murphy feeling like utter shit. <laughs> and then Kevin Murphy offered to have dinner with Kurt Vonnegut and invited him. Hey, we should get together. We'd love to meet you and have dinner with you. Kurt Vonnegut said no, politely, and said he had other plans. Later, Kevin Murphy went back to the same restaurant at that hotel. Kurt Vonnegut was eating alone. <laughs> so there is that touch of cruelty we are making fun of somebody's dreams when we laugh at Burnett Doris's book when we laugh at the room by the way when Tommy Wiseau did the room prior to this becoming a cult hit he compared himself to Tennessee Williams <laughs> this is a guy who thought he was making serious art when we have somebody like the guy who did Birdemic he thought yeah. he was telling a serious environmental message story we are laughing at somebody's dreams is there an element of cruelty? Is it inevitable that we are being mean when we enjoy movies that are so bad they're good? Considering you generally aren't interfacing directly with the person who did it, I argue that the active element in So Bad It's Good is not sadism, it's masochism. It's subjecting yourself to something that you know is going to be distasteful or disappointing or disgusting because there's some kind of a weird payoff. There's some kind of an, an alt payoff that's there. I don't know that I can go along with that. Like specifically in the case of the first category of bad, which is the the bad sincerity. Bad movies are unique experiences because failure tends to be unique. So this movie 
This is the only time you're going to see something like this. As quality goes up, things become the same. Because they become more what you expect? Because they meet at cultural expectations. Mm. They have certain levels of craftsmanship. Mm. I mean, you have the top layer of movies, which are completely fucking unique, because they're going in territories that people haven't considered before. They've set cinematic standards. They just do something, and it just makes them a unique experience. Mm. And then you have this sort of miasmic middle where there you know there's no transitions where everything looks kind of the same because everybody went to the same types of film schools mm. and have the same level access to the same kind of technology and are following all of the usual literary tropes that we all know and understand this is what art is supposed to this look is like. what it's right. supposed to be yeah and then you get to the bottom where they can't they don't have the budget to do that or they don't know how to do that or whatever and now you're back to unique because they're doing things this way because they have no other way to do it. They don't know how to do it. They either don't know how to do it or they just can't. The beauty of it is it sounds like you're describing a cylinder with bright colors at both ends and gray in the middle. Basically, yeah. Mm. And to me, it's, it's kind of the same thing. Ed Wood actually can make a good film. And the story is he was actually really good at dinner theater, which is where he got his start is he hmm. used to do dinner theater. And apparently his dinner theater stuff was, was really good. I don't know. Wasn't there. <laughs> but Glenn or Glenda, nobody was trying to tell that story. Plan 9 from Outer Space, it's fun to watch for Tor Johnson trying to have a speaking role, for the tombstones that fall over, for <laughs> the kids' playhouse that holds 50,000 corpses, <laughs> for the guy scratching his scalp with the gun. Right. <laughs> <laughs> with the pilot who can't talk. You know, I, I can go on and on about why it's an interesting movie. Right. There will never be another Glenn or Glenda. That experience will not come again. If mm. they try to go for that, they will fail. Mm. Glenn or Glenda, nobody was trying to tell that kind of story. Nobody felt the need to tell that kind of story. Nobody was going to take a, this is what my gender identity or my sexuality is, and combine it with weird pseudo-Christian vampiro philosophy religion weirdness right with pull the string and all that <laughs> and the only way you'll ever see this again is if you watch that movie again mm. really if you want to see why ed wood is a hero to me that out of theft and nothing he made glenn or glenda and if i could ever pull off something that artistic i would count myself a successful human being I think we can really look at this idea of having genius or insanity at both ends of this spectrum and mediocrity in the middle. I think we can really see that those people on both ends, those are the people that we're going to remember in 60 years. We're going to remember people who took risks, whether they were successful or whether they failed. An interesting idea to think about whether it's who is making the art and the people that are consuming the art is the idea of risk. Because you're talking about, yeah, at the high end, there's lots and lots of innovation. At the low end, there might be innovation that is less successful or more successful, depending. And then that mediocrity in the middle, there's people who will go and this is high art. I am expecting to be disturbed or I'm expecting something thought provoking. And then there's the people that go into the mediocre section. They go, okay, well, I am expecting a mediocre movie. And another interesting thing I was thinking of is you were talking about Plan 9 for Outer Space, or like any of these movies that you know for so bad it's good, you have that context of people telling you, this is a movie that is so bad it's good, you should go see it. Mm. So it's, again, like the consumer is consuming it for that reason. And I can go and go, ha ha, Miami Connection. But I also will go to a movie, and if I notice that it's 
bad, I don't have that reaction to something and I can't necessarily make fun of it as so easily. Risk is, is a big part of it then. Yeah, because I'm going to go there and my expectation is, yeah, this is a bad movie that'll be funny. But if that happens to me and I'm expecting to be on that high end of the art, it. I think you just put your finger on why I can enjoy a movie like Plan 9 from Outer Space. It's what you're expecting. But no, no. no? Okay. No. Go um, ahead versus Man of Steel. I went into Man of Steel knowing it was going to be a terrible fucking film because I had listened to a Mike, you know, just talk about how bad it was and, and having to go to a support group for it. Yeah. So I knew what I was walking into, but a bad Superman movie isn't raping my childhood or anything like that. I'm not a big superhero fan. I was just, oh, it's going to be a bad movie, but it was a bad movie that didn't care and risked nothing. We're going to do everything that is expected of a movie. We're going to take no chances, and it's just going to be a slog. Where at the high end of film, you have people who are willing to take risks. In the middle, where most of the reason you're producing this movie is economic rather mm -hmm. than art, no risks are taken. At the bottom, risks are taken because you got nothing to lose. So there's a respect for me, for people who make bad stuff and fail, but take risks in doing it, like the guy who made Birdemic. Not so much Tommy mm. Wiseau. The guy who made Birdemic, though, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. He has my respect as a human being because he took a risk. One of my film instructors said the hallmark of a good movie, he used the word good, was whether or not you think about it the next day. And so I think that So Bad It's Good might fit into this category is, yeah, it fails for a lot of reasons. But if you do find yourself going and thinking about it the next day, then it has succeeded in the way that these things are supposed to succeed. Absolutely. And I think on that note, this is a good place for us to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to do High Point, Low Point. And we are back on Radio vs. the Martians, and it's time for High Point, Low Point. This is the part of the show where we go to the top of the mountain, the bottom of the barrel, and we talk about what's so great and what's so awful about So Bad It's Good. And I really want to get started with you, Rosalind. What is the low point of So Bad It's Good? Where does So Bad It's Good more bad than good? This is going to sound awful because I think it betrays how much of a hermit I am. I don't want to say that I'm actively against consuming bits of pop culture, but what happens to me a lot, and this is with good things as well as bad things, but for So Bad It's Good, it's a particularly pervasive medium in which people will go, you have to watch this. You have to do this or you are not a norm. They don't they don't always go, you're not a normal human being. But there's always that sense of peer pressure that if you haven't watched one particular form of So Bad It's Good or consumed it, you're missing out. And I am by habit and nature a very lazy person. And I like to be able to either A, find things that are so bad it's good in my own time. Or if it's recommended to me, not have to do it all at once and all at the same time. Like find it in my own way and my own style, I guess. So it's the pressure. I've seen a lot of that too. I don't know if anyone else here is a bit like me where when you get a lot of recommendations that there's a point at which you hear a TV show or a movie or a comic or something get recommended to you by at least five people. Every successive recommendation makes you less likely to check it out. It seems easier hmm. with stuff that is considered legitimately good by someone because they're passionate about it in a way that's like, this will be fun and you'll really enjoy it rather than you need to watch this because it's horrible. I think that sort of recommending is a recommendation. I think I might be the worst one for that when it comes mm. to bad media. Like, you have to see this. This is so bad. But for me, good media, like a good movie or a good book, I don't want to be interrupted. Like, if I know that something is going to be good or if I'm hoping something that's going to be good, I go to the theater alone. 
Hmm. I think we got into a conversation about this once, actually. It yeah. was you watch movies because usually they're not good and you ha- play it for background noise and there's something to entertain you. Yeah. When I go to watch a movie, I sit and pay attention and like get all studenty about it. Right. And I think the attitude in which you watch something is... Yeah, when I watch Blade Runner or when I rewatched the original RoboCop last week because I realized I hadn't seen it in 20 years, I was it was in the room alone and what I was doing was watching that movie. It wasn't for something else. For bad media, when I say you must watch this, what I'm not saying is I want to watch this with you hmm. because for me, bad media is best when shared. So, so bad it's good. What is the low point, Sam? North Korea has a YouTube channel. Oh, Yeah, Yeah, is that how it's pronounced? Maybe. Okay. (laughs) Just trying to be impressive. Clearly, the bottom of the barrel is going to be North Korea. But what about North Korea? And North Korea in its infinite (laughs) celestial wisdom. There's something about North Korea. There's something about North Korea. By the Farrelly brothers. (laughs) Provided me with an opportunity to put it into perspective. There was a video on uno minuto yeah go ahead and go with that one i don't uno know minuto. uno minuto <laughs> on youtube yeah you're trying to talk me into actually you're, you're not trying to talk me into you have now talked me into learning korean so that i can actually understand what all the north korean stuff is that's in korean because i can't i don't speak a lick of it it's gonna happen and she you're a linguist and, and we've been talking about it well you're linguisticky i don't know i gave him the stink eye linguisticky <laughs> There are many job openings that hire for a linguistic because they're not sure what the actual job title for a person would be. I'm that guy. All right. (laughs) We're hiring for a Klingon linguistic. Yeah. But there was a there's a movie on the Uno Menudo channel. It was subbed in English, but it was in Korean. And it was all about how horrible this one lady was. And she was like, she, her husband was there, like, oh, she couldn't keep a house, and she was bad to her children, and she was just this terrible fucking human being. And her husband was in the military, she, right? Well, in North Korea, yeah. Well, like a high-ranking officer. Some, yeah, okay. Yeah. And apparently she defected, and, and so this nation state decided that it would take time out of its day to produce a movie to tell you how bad this lady was. And that was just a little glimpse in a way that you didn't expect into how little North Korea cares about the human being or the human condition or people. That more than anything I've seen on that channel was dark. So you're not going to be watching the North Korean equivalent to TMZ anytime soon? No. Okay. (laughs) The only one with a guillotine. (laughs) Casey, low point. I had to think really hard on this because, you know, you should spend your time watching better stuff. But when I think about it, the people that are producing new stuff to try to tap in to So Bad It's Good That is really annoying to me. And basically, it's an excuse to make things really poorly on the cheap or just badly and pawning them off as this kind of funny, edgy, whatever. Yeah, whatever it is. And the the biggest defenders, at least the ones that probably are the most visible now, are Jason Friedberg and Aaron Seltzer, the guy who do like these date movie, scary movie, epic movie, meet the Spartans, (laughs) like those all things that are just these dumb rehashes of cliches, parodies of well-known movies. Just really juvenile and just terrible stuff, but they make money. Obviously, they make a lot of money. They're basically the predecessors of things like Police Squad and Naked Gun. These movies where you have satire and parody and it's sort of slapstick. And yeah, maybe there are some references and maybe there's some juvenilia that's there. But instead, they've just sort of done this Fairly Brothers sort of endlessly referencing and re-referencing pop culture stuff to death. And they couch it under this, oh, it's adult naughty humor and... They say a name and you're supposed to laugh because you understand the reference. 
just the sad part is that they do really well. And the fact that they give actual movies where people try to do something, whereas just rehashing a really bad name. I think maybe the worst part of this is that the people who defend the legitimacy of these movies will say, well, you're just too good for a lighthearted, silly movie. No, sometimes things are shit and you should stop making them because they're just making the human race worse. So that's my low point. Amen. I'm taking a similar angle to Casey, and I do agree with you. I think that when somebody makes those movies on the cheap, yes, I guess that's the same animal type as the movies that were made like Airplane, Police Squad, The Naked Gun, but it's not the same species. Right. It's not the same sort of skill and love. For one, when you looked at movies like Airplane, you looked at movies like Young Frankenstein, which were absurdist parody, they were absurdist parody of something that had already become timeless. Hmm. That these were tropes and these were movies that had already survived the test of time. The problem with things like epic movie and superhero movie and scary movie is that they're referencing things that came out in the last three months. And they were obviously made on the cheap and very fast because there was time for them to get a reference to that in there. Oh my God, look, it's Iron Man. That's the whole joke. Yeah. None of these things have really lived this test of time so far. We're talking about stuff that you recognize it and that's the whole joke. Hey, look, it's that pregnant girl from that one teen movie and she's in this one. Will I know who that is in two years? Probably not. Yeah, in 10 years, most of those jokes won't even make sense because the audience who will be watching them won't know the references at all. That in part makes it worse because we can rewatch Plan 9 from Outer Space and understand why parts of it are entertaining and bad for the right reasons, right? We're not going to be able to say that about date movie. You were talking about how people will accuse you of not liking something lighthearted if you bash that movie or decide that you don't like it. Why is it so bad? Why can't you just don the top hat and monocle and like, I don't mind being pretentious and saying, yeah, I don't like that type of lighthearted, as you call it, movie. I like something else and then just let it lie. I I don't know. I think it has to do with the subjectiveness. It's It's an accusation of snobbery, which is honestly a straw man argument. Just because your filter is a little more refined than them, therefore your opinion doesn't make any sense. Well, and it's false on its face because Naked Gun, Police Squad, I love those. These Fairly Brother movies can... I know you don't like Police Squad. No, I think Leslie Nielsen's pretty funny. I probably don't think they're as funny. Or Police Academy, I guess it'd be another... Oh, Police Academy. No, jeez. See, and (laughs) speaking as a snob, I could say, well, that's part of the classic American canon. It's been around for years and years. It's something you should watch if you want to be into American pop culture in a classic way, blah, blah, blah. But the things that the Police Squad is parodying, in this case, we're talking about shows like Dragnet, which are Mm. so deadly Mm -hmm. serious. They capture the tone... And the behavior of those kind of police heroes so well with Leslie Nielsen, and he plays it so straight, and we're putting it up against absurdity, and it's the same thing with those 1970s disaster movies that we did in Airplane. Right. Comedy bad is a completely... Maybe it's just because I'm, I'm more sensitive to comedy, but, like, bad comedies are just terrible. Like, there, there's no reason... They're just they're fucking terrible. Well, it's trying too hard. I think maybe yeah. that's the thing, is that it's like, it doesn't come from a place of, well, there was actually a, the seed of a funny idea. It's yeah. just really over trying so but the thing is police squad and the naked gun they're actually effective comedies that are making fun of bad police tropes i think the honestly so bad it's good corollary to the police squad stuff would be tj hooker yeah to get oh, yeah, back yeah, yeah, in yeah, your yeah. neck of the woods <laughs> i agree wholeheartedly. Okay. but i think there's actually a better analogy that we can use than even the epic movie type things or the Farrelly brothers and i think what we're really talking about here is the asylum Hmm. And this is the asylum. Hmm. 
This is we're getting into what I feel is my low point, which is intentionally so bad it's good movies. Not something that's just bad and is trying to be funny, but something that is trying to tap into and monetize ironic viewing, people who enjoy things because they're bad. And like we said, Tommy Wiseau, YK Kim, Ed Wood did not set out to make bad movies. They did. And they did not set out to make necessarily funny movies, but they did. But these guys like The Asylum, when they make something like Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus, they make something like Sharknado. They are intentionally trying to do, by design, what can only happen effectively when it's organic and it's accidental. Right. When we talk about something like The Asylum, and these are people who do mockbusters, that is the very definition of cynical motivation for creating art. These are people, and if you're not familiar with The Asylum and the mockbusters, this is what people call it, not The Asylum. They intentionally make cheap direct-to-DVD knockoffs of big-budget blockbuster movies as soon as they find out the script is written, they go into immediate production so that by the time it's in theaters, they've got a cheap knockoff version in Blockbuster Video, or its equivalent now that it doesn't exist, <laughs> in time to confuse grandmas into buying or renting it. Mm-hmm. We're talking about Transmorphers. Oh, God. The Da Vinci Mystery. <laughs> Atlantic Rim. Yes! <laughs> Alien versus Hunter. <sighs> the Day the Earth Stopped. Abraham Lincoln versus Zombies. A.E. Apocalypse Earth instead of After Earth. I mean, there's nothing that they won't cash in on. And you know what? As much as people loved Sharknado on Twitter for a week, we don't remember it. Nobody loves this movie now. Nobody's going to love Sharknado in 60 years the way that they love Ed Wood. I mean, we're still laughing at Miami Connection, which right. was made in 1987. We still enjoy it. I bet in 10 years, we'll go, you know what? Let's have a movie night and watch that terrible thing again. Yeah. Nobody's going to say that about Sharknado because it's so fucking phony. Low point. We've gone low. Let's go high. Where does bad become awesome? What is the place at which so bad it's good becomes so bad it's fucking amazing you have to see this? I need to bother Rosalind about it. I like the idea of what's called a shibboleth. Do you guys know what those are? A yes. shibboleth is the kind of thing where it's like a secret code it's, it's like, that only... It's like ba weep grana weep ninibon. Anyone? Hmm. Anyone? Anyone? Transformers, right. the animated movie. Yeah. Fuck you guys. Yeah, see, we're all put to death now. Flipping the table over now. Oh my God, that's Sorry, dare to I, be stupid. I had to... <laughs> Eric yeah. Idle. Yes. Yeah, I, I had to go into deep storage for that, and you were, <laughs> you were flipping the table as it came back. And I'm like, oh, fuck. That's a deep nerd shibboleth, but go ahead. Yeah. Yes. So, well, yeah, the idea of a shibboleth is it's essentially a reference, doing something or saying something that only other people who have been exposed to an experience or a bit of knowledge will know about as well. In my youth, because I'm an old woman now, I reach back and I think about like in junior high school when friends of mine and I could speak in nothing but references for like 20 minutes. And I'm sure everyone else found it the most obnoxious thing in the world. But it was a sense of kinship through that shibboleth, like being able to speak the same language as it were and get what everyone's talking about. And so bad it's good is great for that. Yeah. You brought up space cases a while back and I'm going to do this again. But that show is it's 20 years old now. And I can seriously still talk to friends of mine and say things like, oh, no, not the jump tubes. And like, they'll go, ah! (laughs) Well, we'll we'll tie it in. It's Peter David, right? Yeah, Peter David is a comic book writer and is known for lots of other things. And it's also very closely connected to J. Michael Straczynski. It's the thing that ties all three of us together. It's (laughs) it's disturbing. Comic books. The trifecta. And your thing. And your weird kid show and Babylon 5. Yeah. (laughs) That being said, 
good. And throughout, J. Michael Straczynski should be at the corner of every Holy Trinity. Throughout the years, <laughs> that's disturbing. <laughs> throughout the years, there are people that I knew back when I was fifteen, and now I have no connection with them anymore. One's a lawyer. One does costuming for the Sci-Fi Channel, and then there's nice. little old me up in Seattle. And like, we can still connect with each other randomly over all this time, and still use those stupid references and feel a sense of kinship. And I think so bad it's good if you're watching mm. like a crappy movie with your friends, and you can go, mm. "Lisa, you're tearing me apart." For example, like everybody <laughs> gets that, and it's like I don't know, it's fun and dorky, and it's something that people can embrace. I think. Casey. You know, I really wanted to say MST3K because obviously that's what opened up for a whole generation of people the idea that you could create this experience, this communal experience of having bad movies and making good out of them. It became like, it's a verb now. MST3King is a verb. It's something that you do. And it's something that you normally do with friends. But I'm not so much of an MST3K expert. Maybe that's Sam. But my, Just a little. <laughs> my, after a little, after, a, after a lot of soul searching, my So Bad It's Good is 1995 sci-fi cyber thriller, Johnny Mnemonic. I knew it. <laughs> I knew it. I'm sorry. It, 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 mind you, this is, this is post-speed Keanu Reeves, so he's definitely a, a box office draw at this point. Like, yeah. he can get the seats. It was this first serious big budget attempt to put William Gibson's cyberpunk stories on the big screen, and it fell flat. Not only that, but it it failed commercially and it failed the director, Robert Longo, so bad that he never directed anything after it. (laughs) Like, he's just like, I have to go into hiding for the rest of my life. So it's a story about a data courier who's a futuristic courier who has sacrificed his long-term memory so he could store data in his head and whisk over international lines so he can deliver data in this sort of dystopian future. And of course, he gets a job that isn't what it seems, gets betrayed, and then has to end up saving the world, basically, because he's the chosen one. But what really shines is not Keanu Reeves' wooden acting, because he's, as you expect, it's the cast. It's the cast that's next to him. Specifically, Udo Kier, doing his best creep as Johnny's fixer. Ice-T playing the obviously intentionally named J-Bone. You just go a couple letters up in the alphabet. Ice-T to J-Bone. And then Henry Rollins as Spider, the punk rocker street doc that is there, who's, yeah. do, who's doing good. Quick, find but, an archetype. But what really takes the cake is Dolph Lundgren as Street Preacher. Yeah. He doesn't have a name, actually. He's Street Preacher. He looks like Jesus. He's like this super tall, super ripped guy whose body is full of like cybernetic hardware to make him strong and invincible. And he always talks in all these religious metaphors, but really what he is is a hitman for hire who's basically indestructible. And the best part is when he is going to murder someone, he goes, it's Jesus time and tries to stab them with a crucifix (laughs) knife. You can find a loop of this on YouTube. At one point in time, they're running away from Street Preacher in Henry Rollins' like mystery machine van. And he steps into the headlights and throws both of his arms akimbo in the air and goes, Jesus! And then Henry Rollins runs him over and goes, fuck! <laughs> you can watch that over and over and over again and it keeps getting funnier and funnier. Watch that again. It's a great movie. It delights me to see anachronistic portrayals of the internet because, you know, it kind of looks like Lawnmower Man where you got floaty 3D hands and all these geometric shapes and stuff. But it's beautiful because it's everything that you think that an awesome cyber thriller sci-fi movie should be, but it just never comes together <laughs> in, in the wash. It just does not. Very quick sidebar conversation. Did you hear about the hacker video game they're doing for the Oculus Rift? No. What? It's going to be a video game of all of those internet hacker tropes. That's beautiful. Yeah, That's I am beautiful. so looking. Like, I didn't want an Oculus Rift until I heard about that. <laughs> I'm going to get that. I think Johnny Mnemonic actually uses an Oculus Rift in that movie. Probably. It's great. So, Sam, high point. My high point. I had to think a long time about this because clearly I'm a purveyor of bad stuff and you would expect me to say Mystery Science Theater 3000. And... 
not only did it introduce the world to enjoying things because they're bad, Mystery Science Theater was the only thing on television, the only thing on radio that was funny from my part of the world. Hmm. Kevin Murphy would make a joke about Desplaines, Illinois, while I lived there. Hmm. The inside jokes, I mean, they would do inside jokes for just about everywhere. They made jokes about the kingdom. But these were people who had a sensibility that were from the Midwest. Hmm. So you would expect me to say Mystery Science Theater to 3000. I'm not. (laughs) There needed to be movies for Mystery Science Theater 3000 to exist. That corpus, that body of work needed to exist. And much like in the 30s, you know, you had the pulps and you had serious literature and you had the less serious literature, the entertainment literature. Mm -hmm. In throughout most of the 20th century, you had film and you had movies. And for films, you'd go to a theater and they would be critically acclaimed and critically critiqued. And then you had schlock that was about monsters and women falling over monsters, monsters falling over other monsters, (laughs) monsters occasionally falling over women, uh, (laughs) Lee Van Cleef doing things. Um, I'm imagining this all over Yakety Sacks. All of the work of the Creature from the Black Lagoon movies, John Agar, Hugh Beaumont, Mm. Roger Corman, Mm -hmm. and all of these movies needed to have a place to be shown. Hmm. So my high point for So Bad It's Good is the American drive-in. Because if it did not exist, we could not be having this conversation right now. And its passing is the worst thing to happen to bad media and possibly to film in a long time. And I have been trying to figure out ways... Like, there's a drive-in theater in Lakewood. There's a drive-in theater less than a mile from where we do Ask an Atheist. Hmm. But you know what they do there? A flea market. (laughs) I would love to see that turn back into a drive-in theater. And to have a market for the science fiction movie put together for $3 million. I mean, there needs to be a market for that. And the internet is not it. There needs to be a communal thing to it. And there's people who do, like, guerrilla drive-in movies. There's a need for this. And all of this so bad, it's good. It's a communal thing, and the American drive-in is, I think, where that needs to be, and I'd love to see that come back. If I can put a counterpoint on your high point, I would say VHS rental stores were the band-aid for the demise of the drive-in. But they're gone now. Well, sadly, they are gone now, but for a brief period of time, there were thousands of production companies that were making movies strictly for the rental market, and a lot of them were sort of these scrappy upstart underdogs who didn't have much money, but they were making them because they had a new distribution channel. Yeah. And these are largely the fodder for the best of the worst, a lot of the new people that are doing so bad it's good right now. So I would say, for a brief period of time, VHS was the medium that then replaced the drive-in movie theater. I would say, but it wasn't the same. Right. It lost some of its... Because the thing about the schlock movies is that they were still in some way glamorous. They were still movies. Where when it hit the stores, it became less movies and more TV shows. Hmm. Movies. The thing about movies is they're, they're time limited. They're in the theaters and then they're gone. And even today where we all have 7,000 inch TV screens with 4K resolution. <laughs> well, okay, 1080. <laughs> and, you know, Blu-ray or some download where honestly the movie viewing experience is better at home than it is at the theater. People still go to the theater because yeah. it's an event. And that's what the drive-in had for these schlock movies that VHS didn't. I am hmm. happy for the video store because we wouldn't have stuff like America. We wouldn't, we wouldn't have... Miami Connection. Ye- Miami Connection. We wouldn't have those movies because it was a Band-Aid, right. but it wasn't the same. Right. It wasn't the same thing Agreed. for me. Agreed. I'm wondering if that sense of impermanence where like you go to a drive-in movie, the movie's there for like three weeks or a month or a couple months at the most, and then it's gone. Mm-hmm. If there's kind of a 
backhanded revitalization with that on things like YouTube, where you have a billion and one filmmakers on YouTube. I don't know if they're trying to do necessarily the same sort of stuff that the average drive-in movie place would have had back in like 50s, 60s, whatever. But there's that same sense of like, watch it now. Yeah, it'll be up for the rest of your natural life, but you got to watch it when it first comes out so you can talk about it with your buddies and make the awkward YouTube comment. I think it's the same thing, but it's in a different realm. Okay. I think it's it's the same psychological process, but, you know, like a, a movie on YouTube is somebody getting nailed in the crotch with an anvil. <laughs> I mean, people who legitimately try to make films and distribute them on YouTube and do quite well. Yeah, so, that's, that's true. If it evolves towards that, fantastic. I'm trying to bring some hope into the high point. No, I think there is hope because people are trying to bring the drive-in back. There's gorilla drives in, there, there's a group of people who turned a parking lot into Seattle into a drive-in and they watched like really cheesy movies. I'm sad to see them go. But I think it's an absence. I don't think Mm. it's a death. I think we'll see the drive-in theater and the market that the drive-in theater created come back in some different form. It won't be exactly the same because it never is. But I think we'll see it come back. And this is where I think about High Point. And I guess I'm going to pass the buck again on Mystery Science Theater. MST3K is probably my favorite television show of all time. I have friendships that were built on the foundation of Mystery Science Theater 3000 and a shared love of bad movies. And I love that Mystery Science Theater is probably one of the most stealth, influential TV shows of all time. Internet humor as it exists right now, the idea of taking bad culture and reacting to it in a way that's humorous, criticism as entertainment, that came really from Mystery Science Theater 3000. There are so many internet personalities that really are dissent with modification from the stuff that Mike Nelson and Joel Hodgson created back in the late 80s. So I will bow to the MST3K god, but my high point is something that I still haven't even seen puncture the hide of So Bad It's Good as far as that culture exists on the internet. And that is a little-known martial arts prison movie from the 1990s called Ricky O, The Story of Ricky. Oh, my God. wow. (laughs) Yeah, okay. If I had to describe the story of Ricky to somebody who hadn't seen it, I'd say, imagine a 13-year-old boy with ADHD. You hand him a bag of sugar, a cinematographer, and a budget and say, make the greatest fucking movie of all time. And the story of Ricky would be the movie that kid made. (laughs) This is the perfect party movie. I know that we've all had that experience where we're at a party with a bunch of people. You put a movie on. Everyone watches it for like five minutes. They all drift away. The story of Ricky is the only movie I have ever seen where everyone watched it all the way through. You can watch it while you're drunk or stoned or barely paying attention and you will get it. Because something fucking absurd and stupid and wonderful is always happening. And it's always more fucking absurd, wonderful, and silly than the thing that preceded it. The story of Ricky is a story of a kid named Ricky Ho, who is apparently a Kung Fu Hercules kid who goes to college, goes to prison after avenging the death of his girlfriend. Really, he just punches a guy in the head so hard that it literally makes a dent and punches his leg off. He goes to a prison which is run... Much like a video game where there are bosses (laughs) and there are levels. And to get to the final boss, he has to defeat all the mini bosses. There's a character who always enters the scene through, I guess, a crane kick jump out of a sewer lid. (laughs) So I guess they're always going through the sewers and making an entrance that way. There's a guy with like a late 80s new wave haircut who's always throwing these knitting needles attached to elastic (laughs) bands at people. Like 
scorpion from Mortal Kombat. <laughs> and there's this other guy whose whole job is that he just crushes people's heads. And one scene he actually enters carrying a fucking trident. <laughs> With no, I guess he made it in prison shop. <laughs> so they're a robot machine gun. So, of course, Ricky gets there and pisses off the prison bosses. They're the gang of four. They run the four wings of the prison. Right. He gets into a battle with Oscar, who's the first boss. Oh, my God. And Oscar, as we learn from the <laughs> these bystanders who are always yelling exposition in this movie, when Oscar shows his tattoo, he has to kill. <laughs> so I guess it's a dead person in the shower every day. Yeah. <laughs> so Oscar confronts Ricky in the prison yard in a scene that defies imagination that must be seen on YouTube, preferably with the dubbing. Ricky manages to not only hit Oscar in the back of his head so hard that his eyeball pops out, birds swarm down to eat it. But there is this wonderful scene where Oscar uses a knife to cut the tendons on Ricky's arm. Ricky reaches in, ties them together in a bow, and his arm works again. Yeah. He, he basically heals like Wiley fucking Coyote. <laughs> the secondary boss in this movie is the assistant warden. Wait, wait, you forgot the best part about the Oscar fight. His stomach gets cut open, and he pulls out his own intestines and wraps them around Ricky's neck to try to strangle him, and a bystander screams out, <laughs> All right, you got a lot of guts, Oscar. <laughs> 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 That bystander is the assistant warden, yes, the yeah. secondary villain who is one of the greatest bad guys in any movie. He's an obese man who kind of looks like Kim Jong-il right. back on North Korea, who has a glass eye, which doubles as a mint dispenser and a hook for a hand. And when you go into his office, it's apparently just a wall of pornography. Ricky spends the entire movie avenging people, even people that he's killed himself because the person who sent them after him sent them to their death, so they must be avenged against. <laughs> it never fucking ends. If a time warp opened up at the end of this movie, a dinosaur with a robot riding it came out and Ricky fought it, <laughs> you've been taken to the level where you'd go, eh, I guess that's realistic now. <laughs> this movie never stops being awesome. Not in the part where the bad guys tie up Ricky and Rebar, put razor blades in his mouth, and slap him across the face with a wrench before he spits them out in the guy's face. Not in the part where the main boss in the movie, the warden, turns into a nine-foot-tall rubber ogre for no fucking reason. <laughs> Not when Ricky can use the power of Qigong to punch through fucking stone. <laughs> this movie is one of my favorite things ever. I love introducing people to it because they never know what they're in for. This is the bad movie that we all want to watch when we want to watch a bad movie. It's a triumph of makeup special effects. Rick Baker really has nothing on the guy who did this. The number of times that Riccio punches something like a head or an arm or inside of someone and just gratuitous organs start coming out is incredible. It happens so often. And then you're right. It does get progressively more and more gory and more and more over the top because by the end, there's the warden who is the nine foot tall I don't know what he is. He gets thrown into an oversized meat grinder. It's the most ridiculous. And of, yeah, and the, the liberation scene at the end, of course, is the best. Is Where he the throws ever. the monster head at yeah. them. <laughs> you all are free. I have to admit, I'm a little depressed and disappointed now because you were like, okay, you need to watch Miami Connection for this recording. And now I want to watch that. And I wanted, oh. I'm, I wish I could have seen the two movies back to back now. I think we have a thing in the offing here, an mm -hmm. event. 
Maybe. Yeah. And I hope the listeners do too. Please. Ricky <laughs> O, the story of Ricky. It's on YouTube. It's free. Yeah, you can watch the Get whole thing. the English dub because it is glorious. There's like five guys that do all the voices for all the characters. And some of the voices are, oh, hey, Ricky, you can't defeat me. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. And on that note, it sounds like we have a movie night ahead of us, and I hope you do too. That's all the time we have on this episode of Radio vs. the Martians. We will catch you guys in two months. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Thank you.